Welcome to Focus, the productivity podcast about more than just cranking widgets. I'm David Sparks, and I'm joined by my co-host, Mr. Mike Schmitz. Hi, Mike. Hey, David. How's it going? Uh, I am doing excellent, and I am so excited to have our guest here today. Welcome to the show, Annie Murphy-Paul. Thanks. Thanks for having me on. Uh, I told you before, Annie, um, the book you wrote last year called The Extended Mind, I felt like was one of the best books I read in 2021. I just feel like it it just really resonated with me. And I I was so happy when you agreed to come on the show today. Mm, I'm so glad. I'm so glad it spoke to you. Yeah. The um, So we've talked about it on the show a few times uh, over the last year, gang, as I got into it. But um, Annie wrote this excellent book called The Extended Mind. And, and I guess, why don't you just kind of give us a little summary of, of what the book's about, and we can kind of start from there. Sure. So I'm a science writer, and I mostly write about psychology and cognitive science, but I do read pretty widely in search of, you know, good ideas, big ideas. And I found this one, The Extended Mind, in a philosophy journal. Uh, there's an article published in 1998 by philosophers Andy Clark and David Chalmers that was titled The Extended Mind. That was their first um, introduction of the idea. And, you know, I really, the idea grabbed me from the very first sentence of that article, which said, um, where does the mind stop and the rest of the world begin? So that question um, I found very provocative in part because you know, you'd think it would have a kind of obvious answer that um, the mind, well, the mind stops at the skull. The mind is is the brain, right? I mean, that's kind of the conventional understanding or yeah. way of thinking about it. But Clark and Chalmers argued that, no, actually, the, the mind extends beyond uh, the head and into the rest of the body, into our physical surroundings, into our um, relationships with other people and into our devices and tools and technologies that we use. And this to me was um, such an interesting challenge to our very individualistic society, our individualistic culture, um, to our culture's conventional kind of separation of mind and body, to the idea yeah. that the brain is a computer that can kind of work anywhere at any time. You know, th this was looking at the human brain and, and the human mind in a new way. And that was really exciting to me. Yeah. I mean, something that really stood out for me in the book was kind of the dichotomy of this, because at a certain level, the book is saying, well, Hey, you know, the mind isn't just the space between your ears. It's the database on your computer or, you know, it goes mm -hmm. beyond. Right. Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. at the same time, you're also saying the brain isn't everything, you know, like the argument mm -hmm. that, you know, the brain is not a computer. I remember when I was young reading an Alan Watts lecture where he talked mm -hmm. about the brain being the rebellious organ. And <laughs> I, I've mentioned that on the show before because that really stuck with me. And I realized that a lot of times I get hung up on what my brain is thinking and I don't think about what my body is feeling. And I think this is huh. something you covered in the book. And, and I feel like at, at one level you're making the argument that the brain extends, but also that the brain isn't the whole game either. And that, that's what, the, that's the reason I like the book. I felt like it really kind of straddled that line. And am I, am I out in left field? No, no, I'm really interested in what you said about Alan Watson, the rebellious brain. I have read some of him because I'm, I'm very interested in, in Buddhist thinking, and yeah. um, and I find a, I see a lot of parallels between um, Buddhist thinking and the extended mind. Sure. And I'm not sure what he meant by the rebellious brain. Maybe you can fill me in. But what it makes me think of is the fact that we do imagine the brain as this kind of all-purpose, all-powerful thinking machine, and then we're constantly disappointed <laughs> with it, or or feel we feel that it lets us down, when really, you know if we had a more realistic idea of the brain, that might not be the case. If we saw the brain as this limited, quirky, idiosyncratic, biological organ that evolved to do a bunch of things that are different from what we ask of it these days in our modern world, I think we would, first of all, understand why the brain so often lets us down. And maybe that's kind of what Alan Watts meant by, by it rebelling. But we would also understand that we need to augment the and extend the brain's biological capacities with these outside the brain resources. 
Yeah, and I think you could argue he was making both arguments. I mean, I think I think the fact is that it lies to us often, and we give it a lot more power than it should have. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, you covered mm-hmm. this in the book about you know, there's a and just to, we're not going to go over the whole book outline here. I, I just everybody listening, just go get it's a great book, and I as I told you, Pastor Reed, but Annie breaks it down in in you know, thinking with your body, thinking with your surroundings, thinking with your relationships, but one of it is thinking with your body and the interplay between your organs and your brain. I mean, where, you know, if you've got a pain in your body, is the pain start in your brain or does it start in your body? And like, mm, have you mm. actually thought about that before? Mm, mm. Yeah. And I mean, it's, it's amazing to think about just how deep this um, cultural division goes, whereby we imagine the brain or the mind and the body to be separate and maybe even opposed, you know, like the mind is over here and the body is over here when really the two are so intricately intertwined. And I think the research is showing that, um, showing sort of the fallacy of separating mind and body. And um, that that is a piece of wisdom that other traditions um, have, have known for a long time, but we're kind of discovering many, many of us in the West are discovering for the first time. Yeah, I've got had a significant meditation training, and so much of it is just about not turning off the brain or or or, or putting mm-hmm. it in its place, I guess I would say, but then learning to pay attention to your body. But um, I don't know. I, I just really felt like uh, this book did a good job, and it's accessible to anybody. I mean, I had my wife read it right after I finished it because I feel like um, you're addressing something that I think a lot of people have been ignoring. Mm, mm. Yeah. I, and it, I think that's especially true when it comes to doing mental work, intellectual work. We think that to do serious, real thinking, what that requires is to sit still and to work your brain until the um, until the task is done. You know, keep your keep your butt in the chair, you know, and um, that is just cutting ourselves off from this wellspring of human intelligence, which is our body. Um, so I see that that kind of dichotomy showing up, especially um, in, in in the way we think about doing intellectual work. We think that we have to sort of power through, get it done, and actually quash or suppress the signals and the cues of the body and also, you know, restrict the body from moving when both of those things are really uh, misguided. Yeah. And you talk about that kind of at length in your book, kind of explain how we got in the spot where everybody thinks we all have to sit at a desk for eight hours a day to do our best work. Yeah. You know, I think um, one place to look for why it is that we've developed these ideas um, is, is in the metaphors that we use to, to think about the brain. And one of the most common is uh, the brain as computer, you know, which is a metaphor that got, it took root uh, in the middle of the last century during the cognitive revolution. And, you know, this idea that the brain is like a computer has led to a very fruitful um, research program and and a lot of interesting theories. But in terms of how we think about the brain day to day, it's really unhelpful. It's really uh, problematic because, as I say, many of the brains, um, the wellsprings of of human intelligence are actually things that computers (laughs) have no access to. I mean, uh, the, the human body, the fact that we are so sensitive to context, to the setting in which we're doing our thinking, to the um, the richness of our, our social relationships. These are really where human intelligence springs from. And so if we're thinking of ourselves, our brains as computers, then we're going to find that our brains operate like second-rate computers, you know, like, like defective computers, yeah. you know. Yeah. But that's because we're overlooking the real source of human intelligence instead of, you know, trying to cultivate and nourish that. Yeah, I think it, it's kind of interesting to me because, you know, when they first started developing computers, they wanted it to think like a human. You know, if you go back to, like, mm-hmm. the World War II code breakers but at some point we turned it on its head and now we're trying mm-hmm. to model our brains after computers. I mean, mm-hmm. how did that happen? Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, it's, um, it, the mind is a hard thing to conceptualize, you know, and, and that's actually one of, one of the characteristics of the human brain is that 
in order to understand something abstract like the mind, we look for concrete analogs, you know, that we can really grasp. You know, you, you even hear me in my language using all these words that actually are actually represent, you know, um, bodily motions. But, um, you know, another metaphor that we often gravitate towards when we want to understand the brain is that the brain is like a muscle, um, which can can be, again, can be a helpful kind of way of thinking about the brain. It's 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 hopeful. It's optimistic. You know, many of your listeners may be familiar with the growth mindset, which is an, a, a notion introduced by the Stanford psychologist Carol Dweck, this idea that um, the brain is a mu- is like a muscle that gets stronger with exercise and with practice. The problem with um, that metaphor, as I understand it, is that it's still very brain centric, neurocentric. You know, it's still is still saying the brain can do it all. Um, and sometimes, you know, just working the brain more and more to the point of exhaustion is is not productive and can be very frustrating. And what I love about the theory of the extended mind is that it opens up, you know, literally the whole world to be brought into the thinking process and to help the thinking process along. Uh, I love that the uh, extended mind perspective that you just described as it differs from the growth mindset perspective that Mm. Carol Dweck talks about is kind of the fact that you don't have everything that you need in order to <laughs> think about things the right way. Mm-hmm. One of the big aha moments for me going through this book was this cognitive repraisal idea mm-hmm. that you introduced in chapter one. And I thought this was brilliant because I've studied emotional intelligence, always been fascinated with that topic mm-hmm. and emotional hijacking by the amygdala. And you talk about how actions are inter- the traditional thinking anyways is that actions are interpreted by the brain and then the brain chooses the appropriate emotion and directs the body to act accordingly. But the reality is that something happens, we act, and then the brain puts the pieces together. So we can actually give new meanings to actions like excitement instead of nervousness. And I was wondering if you wouldn't mind unpacking that a little bit and maybe sharing some examples for people. Sure. Yeah. I, this, I find this fascinating too. I'm glad you brought that up. I mean, we do tend to think from our neurocentric, brain-centric perspective that, as you say, something happens, the brain decides what's going on and then tells the body what to do. You know, you see a bear in the woods and you feel fear and the brain identifies it as fear and the brain tells the body to start running. When really um, the the causal, the direction of the causal arrow is kind of reversed in the sense that um, our really visceral emotions and feelings like fear travel on pathways that are fast, much faster than conscious thought. So, and I don't want to suggest that the brain isn't involved here. It is. But the the fact is that we, we start running and our hearts start beating faster and our palms start sweating in a dangerous situation like that first. And then the brain, which when you think about it, is locked inside this dark room of the skull. You know, it, it, it's only, it's making sense. It's piecing together what's going on in the outside world just from, from the inputs from the body. So, you know, the, the body is responding. It's, it's running. It's, it's the heart is beating. The, the palms are sweaty. And the brain puts those um, basic bodily reactions together and says, okay, I'm feeling fear. But that's a process of construction. You know, it's, it, we're, con- we're constructing that emotion rather than, you know, feeling it instantly and whole from the beginning. So what cognitive reappraisal does is say that, well, um, since the brain is constructing an emotion from these base, the the sort of basic building blocks of, of bodily reactions, we can, we can participate in the construction, the, uh, the reconstruction of, of the emotion. We can take those um, bodily reactions say that you're it's it's not so much seeing a bear in a woods in the woods but you're about to give a speech and you're feeling those same symptoms you know the butterflies in the stomach the the um beating heart the sweaty palms well those uh bodily reactions um could be built or and constructed into a an emotion called fear but they also are the very same um, bodily reactions that you'd have if you were really excited, if you were waiting in line to get on a, you know, really uh, exciting looking uh, roller coaster. So once you know that it's that emotions are constructed out of the basic units of, of bodily 
responses, then you can tell yourself, and I know this sounds a little bit silly, but I've done this and it works. You can tell yourself in advance of that speech, not I'm I'm so nervous, I'm so nervous, you know, but I'm I'm excited. I'm really excited. I'm really psyched. This these feelings I'm having are my body preparing myself for this um this exciting challenge, you know, and that really can um can turn things around in terms of how it feels to you. The one thing you don't want to do is um tell yourself, calm down, calm down, you know, which a lot of us do, because that's not congruent with um with the those bodily reactions that are already underway. And your body knows better. Um, you know, then to then to take um, that kind of advice from on high from the brain, better to work with the body's actual reactions, but construe them in a different way, in a more positive and constructive way. And, and the subtle note of all this is the brain isn't driving the sweaty palms and the elevated heart rate. It's mm. interpreting mm. them. So w- when you tell yourself to calm down, it's like you, you can't, the brain isn't going to control that. It, it's getting right. the input no matter what, you know. Yeah. And that's, again, like you were saying, David, it's like giving the brain to, we give the brain or we imagine that the brain has more power than it does. You know, it's, it's much better to uh, acknowledge that the brain has limited power and then figure out ways to kind of work with that. And it's interesting because mindfulness training is all about finding space between um, action and reaction, which is exactly kind of what you're describing. Mm hmm. Yes. And I, I, as I say, I found a lot of um, parallels or connections between Buddhist thought, um, mindfulness practices, and the, the extended mind. In fact, I talk explicitly in the book about a, a particular kind of um, mindfulness practice known as the body scan, which is, um, you know, just the simple act of bringing open-minded, non-judgmental, curious attention to whatever is arising in the body. And when you do that, you realize there's, um, there's always this constant flow of, of internal signals and cues and feelings. It's there all the time, but, you know, we're so attuned to all the busy (laughs) stimuli coming at us uh, from the outside that it's very easy to lose touch with that inner world. And so engaging in the body scan, even in a, an, an informal way, just kind of checking in with what's happening inside your body on a regular basis can be a good way to to get back in touch with that. This episode of the Focus Podcast is brought to you by Indeed. Go to indeed.com slash focus to get a free $75 credit to upgrade your job post. If you're ready to take your business to the next level, you'll need the right team to make it happen. Indeed makes it easy to hire and build a team with the right skills to make those thoughts you've had about growing your business a reality. If you're hiring, you need Indeed. Because Indeed is the hiring partner where you can attract, interview, and hire all in one place. And Indeed is the only job site where you're guaranteed to find quality applications to meet your must-have requirements, or else you don't pay. Instead of spending hours on multiple job sites hoping to find candidates with the right skills, you need one powerful hiring partner that can help you do it all. Indeed partners with you on every step of the hiring process. Find great talent through time-saving tools like Indeed Instant Match, assessments, and virtual interviews. With Instant Match, as soon as you sponsor a post, you get a short list of quality candidates with resumes on Indeed that match your job description. And you can invite them to apply right away. Plus, you only pay for quality applications that meet your must-have requirements. It's pretty incredible how easy Indeed makes it to hire great talent. According to Comscore, Indeed is the number one job site worldwide. Join more than 3 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. Start hiring right now with a free $75 sponsored job credit to upgrade your job post at Indeed.com focused. That's F-O-C-U-S-E-D. This offer is valid through March 31st. Go to Indeed.com slash focus to claim your $75 credit before March 31st. Indeed.com slash focus is that link one last time. Turns and conditions apply. You need to hire. You need Indeed. And our thanks to Indeed for their support of the Focus podcast and all of Relay FM. Another big theme that came out of the book is just this idea that, you know, our bodies and brains function differently in different environments. Mm-hmm. And 
that is something I've kind of always known instinctively, but mm-hmm. I like the, you really bang me over the head with it in the book. And that's kind of what I need. <laughs> you know, I was looking through my okay. highlights and so much of it. My, one of my favorites is all of us think differently depending on where we are. And mm-hmm. it's so obvious. And, and this is where the human brain is computer thing breaks down. I talk, I've talked exactly. about it on this show, you know, like if, if you put me in the middle of the Mojave desert or you put me in a nice air conditioned room, my brain is not going to function the same in two different places. Right. Right. And right. Um, talk a little bit about how you kind of came to that, you know, and um, and the effects you've seen with the with the research. Yes. Well, as you say, you know, one of the big, big differences between the human brain and a computer is that a computer is going to operate the same no matter where it is, while the human brain is just exquisitely context sensitive. And, you know, just to mention one of these um kinds of contexts, types of contexts, you know, one of the most um, fruitful uh, contexts for thinking is the outdoors, is nature. Maybe not the Mojave Desert, but um, somewhere a little, a little more um, um, temperate uh, that is, that is outside. And, and to me, the, the research behind this was especially interesting because, you know, on one level, it seems obvious that um, it's good to get outside. It's good for human beings to be in nature. We all know that we feel we feel good when we're when we're outside enjoying enjoying the outdoors. But the reason why that's the case was something of a surprise to me that, um, you know, human beings evolved in the outdoors, this life we live now where we're um, inside almost all the time, especially during the pandemic, um, is is really a quite recent uh, development, evolutionarily speaking. And because we evolved in the outdoors, the kind of uh, stimuli, the kind of information that we uh, encounter in the outdoors, our, our brains are tuned our, and our sensory faculties are tuned to make sense of that kind of information in a very effortless and easy and pleasant way. Because whatever the brain finds easy uh, it also tends to find pleasant. So that's why we um, we associate being outside with kind of having, uh, you know, an elevated mood. But um, because it's so easy for us to take in the kind of stimuli that characterizes nature, um, it, it's, it tends to have a restorative effect on our attention. And we, you know, we think so much about uh, managing our attention, directing our, t- our attention. We worry about our attention being distracted and that's all kind of like the demand side of attention. But we don't think so much about the supply side of attention. You know, like, our, what are we doing to refill the tank? You know, what are we doing to replenish our, our attentional capacity? And it turns out that the fastest and easiest and best way to, to restore our attentional capacity is to spend time outside. And then we can return to our very hard-edged focus that we need to bring to our, you know, our work with symbols and and language, um, or to to a, an urban setting where we have to cope with, you know, fast-moving cars and loud noises and bright lights, you know. But being in nature uh, is going to restore that attentional capacity that gets drained by just sort of life in 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 our modern world. You mean we can't just sit and grind at our desk for 10 hours a day with no consequences? I don't understand. Right. Because that's worked so well for all of us, right? During the pandemic, we all are working at our very best. <laughs> in your research, did you find any specific advantages to different types of nature? Or is it just getting in nature that provides the general benefit? Yeah, it does seem to be nature of any kind. It doesn't have to be... Um, a spectacular nature. It doesn't have to be great weather. Um, it does seem to matter, uh, you know, it can matter how long you spend um, in nature. There seems to be a special kind of benefit that kicks in after, say, three days, you know, if you're able to take a, a hike into the wilderness and, and really have an extended time in nature. And part of that is that, you know, that's one of the only times we really get away from our devices but there also seems to be a real relaxing of the of the mind um uh, there's a kind of um an an associative or an imaginative faculty that comes into play you know the default network that of the brain that um is responsible for daydreaming and imagination that kind of comes to the fore so 
Um, but, you know, not all of us have three days to, to wander off into the wilderness. So research suggests that even looking out the window um, for a few moments and just sort of gazing at a tree um, or the, at the sky can be restorative instead of just, um, again, staring at that screen uh, for hours, hours at a time. One of the best decisions I ever made when COVID happened was at the beginning of it, I decided I was going to get outside every day and mm -hmm. I ran or biked every day from March in Wisconsin until the snow started oh, to wow. fly. Uh -huh. but I, I hope found... you had good clothes. <laughs> <laughs> I did, I did. Uh, but I did definitely notice the benefit from that. Initially, I, I thought that it would just help me cope with all the uncertainty, but I found mm -hmm. that as soon as I got out on the, the bike trail or the running trail, that's mm -hmm. when I had the, the best ideas and found the solutions to the problems I couldn't figure out as long as I was sitting in front of my computer. Yeah. And you were getting kind of a double benefit there because you also were moving. Um, you were you were engaging in physical activity, which again, like we have this very misguided idea that real thinking happens when we're sitting still. And again, that's not how we evolved to think. I mean, when you when you think about um, the activities that our forebears uh, engaged in, things like foraging and hunting, those are activities that are both cognitively demanding and they're physically demanding. And those two things went together, you know, and that's really, that's really what produced our particular brand of human intelligence. And yet we have this idea that in order for the mind to be operating at peak capacity, the body has to be still. And that's really, um, really a, a mistaken, mistaken notion, but a very common one. Well, the book really kind of lays it out, but it, it's just remarkable to me, this disconnect, because I would guess that everybody listening to this show has had an experience where they were stuck on a problem at their desk and mm -hmm. they took the dog for a walk or they walked mm -hmm. through a park mm -hmm. or mm -hmm. they maybe they just even just, you know, drove to Starbucks or just went, you know, put mm -hmm. themselves somewhere mm -hmm. else. And suddenly the answer just pops to their brain and and we have these experiences, but yet we still keep coming back to the idea of this grindstone and I just don't understand how that disconnect exists. I know. I do think it's, um, it's, it's, I, I do go back a lot to the metaphor of a brain as computer, you know, a brain, a computer, it's like input output, you know, you, you put, give it the information it needs, it churns away, it grinds away for a while, and then it, it produces an answer. And so we just, um, it rather simple-mindedly kind of think that the brain works the same way when in fact, it's uh, because the brain is so context sensitive, often the best thing to do if we're not thinking well in our current uh, in the current moment is to change the context, you know, not to drive the brain harder, but to change what's around the brain. And, and as you were saying, you know, that often makes makes the difference. Uh, on the topic of driving the brain harder, something that you had said a little bit earlier, i uh, just can't shake <laughs> when, the, when the brain finds easy, it finds pleasant. How does that fit into like the challenge of a, solving a difficult problem and the whole concept of flow? Oh, well, that's interesting. Well, I think, you know, um, one of the beautiful things about flow and I'm, and we probably all experienced it now and then is that it is so enjoyable and it makes the time fly by. And, um, you know, if if we could all be doing our work in a state of flow, I think we'd be quite happy. But, you know, flow requires us to uh, calibrate uh, the difficulty of the challenge to uh, to our capacity so that it's just at the edge of what we're able to do, as, mm -hmm. I, as I understand the idea of flow. Um, and so that speaks to this idea that um, what the brain, you know, because the other side of it is that the brain doesn't enjoy being bored either. The brain is is a novelty kind of seeking organ and it wants to be stimulated. It wants to encounter novelty. It loves surprise, but it also doesn't like to be um, frustrated or to take on tasks that it can't complete. So the beauty of flow is that it's about finding that perfect spot that sweet spot um, where you're you're getting all the the stimulation and excitement of um, of a challenge that's that's difficult enough to 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 energize you, but not so hard as to frustrate you. Um, and when you can get yourself into that spot, it, it, the brain, you know, you're rewarded with this very pleasurable, um, enjoyable feeling of of just being uh, ma you know mastering um, what you're doing and 
that's that's uh, that's a great place to be. Yeah, I I think you explained that really well. That uh, there's a a lot of things that you can do as it pertains to your environment specifically. I think that can kind of set up your brain to engage with the the task at hand and in, in maybe a different way, and that causes it to kind of naturally move towards that state of flow. And and for me, one of the ways that that happens is through the thinking process and creating and you have a whole chapter in here on thinking within the space of ideas which i just absolutely <laughs> love that concept because mm, mm, i'm fascinated mm-hmm. with like well where do ideas come from and how come they pop up over here and not mm-hmm. in other scenarios and things like that uh as i'm going through this you mentioned in the book about uh, the quote from darwin acquiring the habit of writing very copious notes not for publication but as a guide for yourself mm-hmm, and i mm-hmm. couldn't help but think of these connected notes apps. And this is, you know, David and I nerd out about this all the time. Uh, maybe you're you're aware of like the whole Zettelkasten approach and like how things all tie together and how that can facilitate the, the thinking process. Um, I'm kind of curious how you implement this. Mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. You talk about thinking on paper and then like how do you actually take your notes and then connect these dots. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this is touching on two aspects of mental extension, you know, thinking with the space of ideas, as you mentioned, and thinking with technology. And I'll just take the, that first one first, which is, um, you know, again, I'm, I'm going to sound like a broken record talking about uh, the evolutionary history of the brain, but, you know, the brain did not evolve to sort of contemplate abstract ideas. It, it really evolved to move the body through space to sense and move the body and to manipulate objects, you know, to, to, um, to use tools and, and, um, grapple with things in the real world. And it does those things. The brain still does those things very easily, effortlessly without, you know, a lot of cognitive load as, as psychologists like to say. And so, when we in our modern lives are dealing with ideas and information, we want as much as possible to turn those ideas and pieces of information into physical objects that we can manipulate or into um, kind of landscapes that we can navigate as if as if it's a three-dimensional landscape. And um, when we do those things, we can draw on this whole suite of embodied resources like spatial memory and proprioception, which is, um, you know, our sense of where our body parts are in space and um, all these things that lay dormant when we just keep these thoughts and these um, ideas inside our heads. So I, I in particular, am a big fan of post-it notes. And I will often, if I'm working out, say, a very complicated structure for an article or a chapter, I'll write, you know, one idea per post-it note, stick them up on a bulletin board and then literally move them around. Now, some of uh, that, some of that functionality um, now can be carried out with, with technological tools as, as, as you were mentioning, Mike. And, um, and I think that's, that holds a lot of promise for extending the mind with our tools. You know, I, I, there's, our tools don't always extend our mind. Our, our technologies, I think, sometimes contract our mind in the sense, our minds in the sense that they can distract us or um, not serve our needs. But those kinds of, um, those kinds of apps and, and uh, platforms that allow us to offload our, the contents of our heads onto physical space, whether that's a bulletin board or a computer screen, I think are really promising in terms of genuinely extending extending our minds i've always felt like and i know that you know the computer as brain is is a bad metaphor but to use it anyway um (laughs) we i think our brains are good at processing they're not good at ram they're not good at memory Mm, and so Mm -hmm. so to the extent you find digital tools that you can use to hold the ram and then Mm -hmm. free your brain to do the processing you actually can you can actually make progress and whether it's post-it notes or some nerdy application, I feel like there's something to explore there for, for anybody. Yeah. I think I find it helpful to think in terms of what is the brain good at, you know, and what are, what are computers good at and, and to very deliberately and intentionally um, employ computers for what they're good at. For example, 
that computers have a very stable memory. You know, you don't um, enter something in your in your Google Calendar and then find that Google has gone and changed the date without you realizing it. You know, whereas our brains, or at least my brain, yeah. <laughs> does that all the time. So we actually want to use our computers for what they're good for, and then that frees up mental bandwidth for what only the human brain can do, which is, you know, these higher cognitive functions of imagination and planning and making connections among ideas, things that computers, you know, at least uh, as as of yet can approach. You mentioned the idea of the idea, turning ideas into landscapes. And Mm -hmm. uh, I know that there are both digital and analog tools that allow you to do this, but I couldn't help but think of the practice of mind mapping when you use the word landscape. Uh, Is that something that you practice? Is that sort of what you do with your sticky notes or? Uh, Of a a kind. Yeah. I write in the book about concept maps and how um, what's so interesting is that uh, neuroscience research suggests that we actually use the same structures in the brain that uh, to to map, you know, in our in our brains, um, ideas uh, and and scenarios, uh, sort of, you know, um, uh, mental scenarios in the same way that we map a physical landscape. So what's so useful about a, a, a concept map that we draw and have sort of, you know, on the outside is that it's it's making concrete and stable the same kind of maps that we're creating in our in our own minds. And so, you know, once we, again, get those thoughts and ideas outside of our heads and put them onto physical space, we um, create all these new opportunities for interacting with that information in new ways. Um, for one thing, we can apply our senses to um, to information that's outside of our heads. You know, we can look at it, we can speak it aloud, we can move it around. Um, and we also get what uh, one psychologist calls the detachment gain when we take our ideas out of our heads and put them into space, onto physical space. We actually, um, we're no longer so identified with them. We've put a little bit of space between ourselves and our ideas and we're able to think about them differently. So it's it's almost like the same ideas are not the same. The same information is not the same when it's inside our heads as opposed to outside our heads. And it really can be uh, a game changer to get those ideas and information outside of our heads. And, and we, we deal with them in a whole new way. I never thought about that before, but that makes a lot of sense uh, to mm-hmm. get something external. So it's no longer associated with your identity. Mm-hmm. And now you can freely say, this is not a good idea without <laughs> condemning so. yourself. Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes. There's one section in the book where you talk about a study done with very large monitors and like full wall mm-hmm. size, I think whiteboards. And, uh, that has really stuck with me. It's like, mm-hmm. man, I, I've got to like figure that out because that is, it's kind of on the same vein, but you know, getting mm-hmm. that stuff out somewhere where you can see it and pull it apart. Um, it, you know, mm-hmm. all of this stuff, um, I think we've all experienced the, the truth of what you're writing, but it's just such a weird situation where we we're also at the same time, logic, I'm not saying logic, but tradition is telling us something different. You know, when I first started working in an office, um, you were expected to be at your desk when the boss showed up and at your desk when the boss left. And it wasn't about getting the work done. It was about being at your desk. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Yeah. And, you know, I do think it's uh, the, the pandemic, as terrible as it has been, does offer us an opportunity to rethink all these ways of working that um, maybe were not very effective to begin with. For example, the open office, um, you know, that, you know, may rest in peace. I hope, I hope the open office maybe has been killed off by the pandemic, but um, it really, it was the worst of all worlds in the sense that it doesn't allow for protected private deep work. And it also was not very good at, um, facilitating true collaboration and um, and encounters between and fruitful encounters between people because people were just so desperate to retreat, you know, into their headphones and get a little work done. So uh, I was particularly drawn to this idea that I write about in the book called intermittent collaboration. You know, that the best way to work is to is to oscillate between periods of 
isolated, you know, private protected time and periods of of very intentionally social and um, convivial and and collaborative kinds of of spaces. And I'm I've been wondering whether the home office divide could could support that. You know, whether home uh, for those of us who work remotely could be that place where we do our deep protected um, work in isolation. And then maybe the workplace could be reinvented to be a place that is very consciously a, a place where um, collaborative activities are are elevated and, and promoted. Um, I don't know. We'll see. We'll see what comes out of all of this. But um, I do think that many of the ways that we've been working and learning um, have been oddly oddly uh, at odds, strangely at odds with um, our nature as human beings. And so I think it's time to sort of re-examine that. Yeah, these um, community workspaces or collaborative workspaces at the office are, it seems to me like they're not going away. It's like they're showing up even more. Mm. Um, What would you recommend to employers that currently have Mm -hmm. like the big bullpen style office? What kind of steps could they take to make their, give their, their workers better of an opportunity. Yeah. Well, in the book, I talk about how for a while it was all the rage among lead company leaders and managers to think of the office as a coffee shop, you know, and the coffee shop has this lovely historical pedigree as the place where a lot of modern ideas took root. And it is a nice idea, this idea that you just sort of bring people together and, you know, they'll collide and poof, you know, you'll get these amazing innovative ideas. But as I say, you know, it's it's um it's actually very hard to get um demanding cognitive work done in an environment where people are are constantly distracting you. You know, the the human brain, that evolved human brain is uh really attuned to novelty in the environment, especially to the doings of other human beings, to um we process the meaning of the words that are being spoken around us, whether we want to or not, you know. So um uh, my advice to um, to managers and leaders, uh, as I put it in the book, is to look not to the coffee shop, which I think is kind of a terrible model for the modern office, but an even older form, um, which is the monastery. And I, I wrote about um, a 400-year-old monastery that, um, that managed to sort of anticipate... Um, this idea of intermittent collaboration in the sense that there are privates, there are spaces for private thought and reflection, you know, the monks cells. And then there are spaces that are explicitly intended for the monks to come together and to collaborate and to work together and study and pray together. So um, I think that there, there are actually forms in our, in our human history that we can draw on that are much better suited than the ones that maybe we're using right now um, to, to try to work and learn in. Yeah. We just talked about this in our last episode about focus and workspaces. And it was striking to me um, uh, two Apple related buildings. The first one Mm. is the Pixar building, which Steve Jobs took a vital role in. And that Mm -hmm. kind of has a monastery feel to it. The animators Mm. have their own private office spaces but they also have very public areas. In fact, famously, he only wanted to put one bathroom in the building <laughs> to right. force people to bump into each other. So, so he really, I think, was on the right track. But then when they built the Apple, you know, big mothership campus they have now, it's almost all community space. And it's so funny to me that they would kind of lose the thread in that process. Mm, mm. Yeah, and unfortunately, it's even worse when you kind of go down the scale from from Apple, which obviously had enormous resources to build any kind of building that they wanted. I think what got kept from the idea of activity specific workplace uh, workspaces was just this, just this, as you say, this sort of open bullpen uh, approach, which is not incidentally like much cheaper than giving everyone private offices. So we got the the big open spaces that were supposed to um, uh, facilitate collaboration, but we didn't get the, the private spaces, which are equally necessary. So um, that's a rebalancing that I think we need to, we need to consider. This episode of Focused is brought to you by Ahrefs. Do you want more Google traffic to your site? Maybe you're struggling to rank and you're not sure what you can do about it, but the idea of hiring an SEO agency might be outside your budget. 
Your solution is Ahrefs Webmaster Tools, and it's free. The best part of this is it isn't a 14-day free trial offer. It's just free. And it's a super powerful tool that will do a full website audit for you and keep working for you. It'll scan your site and prioritize precisely what you need to fix to improve your search results. So you can see which keywords your pages are ranking for, understand how Google sees your content, and discover how making changes can blow up your traffic, which could do a lot for your business. It's time you started getting Google to work for your business. Go to hrefs.com slash webmaster dash tools to get the free tool now or click the link in the show notes. That's A-H-R-E-F-S dot com slash webmaster dash tools. Our thanks to Ahrefs for their support of the Focus podcast and all of Relay FM. When you were talking about the workspaces and the open office in particular and the collaboration that it's supposed to inspire but often doesn't, uh, I couldn't help but think of a concept that you talk about in the book called groupiness, Yeah, which I, I love that term. And uh-huh. I'm kind of curious if you don't mind explaining this because it seems like uh, the general idea here is that we want to do life together before we would work together. But Mm -hmm. maybe there's some obvious places we should be looking to put up those walls or those boundaries. Hmm. Yeah, I love the term groupiness too, if only because psychologists so rarely come up with something so (laughs) like appealing and, uh, and colloquial as groupiness because the, the, the more, um, technical term also used by psychologists is entitivity, which is like how, how much does a collection of individuals feel like an entity, feel like a group? And that, that can differ, you know, it can really feel like just a group of atomized individuals doing their own thing. And I think we've all kind of probably been on, on teams or in groups that feel like that. And then there can be groups uh, or teams that are characterized by very high levels of groupiness, where you really feel that you are thinking with a kind of group mind and in which um, a kind of collective intelligence is generated that is greater than the sum of, um, that is smarter than any one individual on the team. And what's interesting to me about creating a sense of groupiness is that although I think it's, it's the groupiness is really demanded by our modern world where, you know, information is so is uh, expertise is so specialized and information is coming at us in such great quantities. And the challenges that we face as a society are so challenging. Um, You know, all of these are facets of the modern world that really demand the group mind as a solution. But the, um, the way that groupiness is generated so often, um, are are very they're very visceral they're very primitive in a way they go back to our our very our nature as as biological creatures and I'll I'll give you an example I mean one of the classic ways of creating a sense of groupiness is um, synchronized movement so when people move in the same way at the same time as other people that the divisions between us get kind of blurred and we start to think of ourselves as just part of one big blob, you know, and um, that allows us to cl- to uh, cooperate and to collaborate with each e- with each other more easily. And I think you can see that um, institutions like the military and churches and all kinds of organizations have known this, um, at least on some level for centuries, because um, it's things like uh, m- armies marching together or people in churches, you know, um, making motions together and go- and performing rituals together that really bonds a group together and makes them feel as if they are part of a group rather than simply an individual. So the way that that can get applied in our modern workplaces, um, I'm not going to advocate that people start marching together, but they could... Um, they could share meals together. That's a really important thing that we've, most of us have have lost over the past couple of years. Um, we can we can perform rituals of a kind. You know, there are lots of teams have um, certain rituals that are associated with important events in the in the team's life, and we can um, we can learn together. We can uh, have emotional experiences together. You know, all of these things work best 
when we're in the same place at the same time. And I think that that's um, the fact that we've missed out on that kind of face-to-face, in-person interaction where the the flow of of signals between people is just so much richer than is possible when you're looking at someone on a screen. I think that explains some of the languishing that many of us experienced during the pandemic. And I really hope that we can get back to seeing each other in person sometime soon. I have for a very long time uh, resisted every form of team building. But when I read this section in the book, (laughs) I think you've convinced me that it's important. (laughs) Yeah, well, me too. I mean, I'm a freelance writer who's been working on my own for many, many years. And I I must say that I was a very brain-bound person when I started this book. The the book really kind of convinced me, almost against my will, (laughs) um, that uh, sitting in front of my computer and pounding away at my keyboard was maybe not the best way to get my work done. Well, well, and I also think the groupiness stuff she talks about is a lot more, I, I, you know, the kind of corporate uh, quote, you know, I've got air quotes of team building stuff. Mm-hmm. That's so often it's manipulative and everybody knows mm-hmm. it and it's not really a groupiness action. But, but I was thinking like, like he's not only the military, but even like Tai Chi and some of these things people do together. That's, that's a completely different vein for me. But but your book is really, I felt like it was kind of a wake-up call for me. It brought a lot of stuff to the front of mind that was at the back of mind. What what are a few mm. things somebody could do um, to kind of take action on some of the ideas you've shared in this book? Sure. I'll, I'll grab a couple from each section of the book. You know, if you were looking to think with your body more, you could engage in that body scan um, that I mentioned or um, try to incorporate physical activity into your workday, not separating it from the workday. You know, so often we um, save our gym workouts for like after work when really ideally we would be incorporating shorter movement breaks into our workday. And also another thing we didn't really get to talk about is um, using gesture more, you know, moving your hands around more and making sure that others can see your gestures, that you're sitting far enough away from the camera um, when you're on Zoom that your gestures are being seen by others and that hopefully you can see other people's gestures too, because that's, you know, gestures are, uh, are again, themselves part of the thinking process. And we think less well when we, when we inhibit our gestures. So then, um, you know, thinking with spaces, um, I would recommend that people get outside as much as they can also to be thoughtful about, um, how they arrange their interior spaces. You know, I write in the book about, the importance of filling your workspace with cues of identity and cues of belonging. So objects and signs and signals that remind you of who you are and what you're doing in that space, what your your role is there. Um, and also reminds you of your the, the valued groups to which you belong that can really prime you um, to do your best thinking in that space. And we talked a lot about cognitive offloading, you know, um, try to get those thoughts, those um, ideas and information out of your head as often as possible. And then finally, um, that last section about thinking with people, uh, with relationships, um, you know, we humans have these powerful social brains that um, we think, again, we we, we separate social life from mental and academic and intellectual life, but really, you know, we're social all the time. And the, the, the key is to harness our social brain in the service of, of learning and working. And some of the ways that we can do that, in addition to what we were talking about in terms of groupiness and uh, the group mind, is bringing social activities like storytelling and debating and arguing and um, teaching other people, those social activities um, activate cognitive processes that remain dormant when we're just thinking by ourselves. What Human beings weren't really designed to think alone, <laughs> and we're actually prone to a lot of cognitive biases and distortions when we think alone. So it's really uh, a good idea to get to bring social activity into your thinking as much as possible. You made a, a comment uh, about how you almost discovered against your will that sitting in front of the computer wasn't the right way to (laughs) do your work. What was the biggest aha moment or revelation that you got from doing all this research and writing this book? I think, you know, I, and this, this is something of a pandemic thing too. I also started to 
incorporate a daily bike ride into my my work day. And I found it was almost sort of magical that I would spend the morning researching, thinking, writing, and then head out for a bike ride in the later afternoon. And it was always um, during those bike rides that all those thoughts of the day would kind of come together. And I talk a bit in the book about, um, you know, again, the brain uses metaphors to think about abstract ideas because, um, you know, we're really much better suited to thinking about concrete material things. Um, And there's something about the actual, the act of moving forward through space that is kind of a loose metaphor for dynamism and creativity. I mean, when you think about how we, the, the, the figures of speech we use when we, when we feel like we're being creative or not being creative, you know, if we're, if we're not being creative, we say we're stuck, we're in a rut. And if we're being creative, we say we're on a roll or things are flowing, you know, and there's something about actually initiating the movement with the body, with literal movement that I found uh, primed my brain, I think, to think in in those same kind of fluid dynamic terms. And so, you know, I really think the the bike rides were, <laughs> were integral to, to pulling this book, book together. I don't know that it could have happened otherwise. You also talk about, you know, internal spaces. And mm-hmm. um, uh, we were just curious, what have you done to your internal space now that you've done the research? Have you made changes? <laughs> to my interior space. Yeah. Yes. Um, yeah, you know, it's uh, this is another thing to just to mention in terms of uh, returning to the office. Um, it's so important that we feel a sense of ownership and control over our space. Um, and fortunately, that's something that most of us have in our home. So, yeah, I did um, take the initiative to take my own advice in terms of um, redecorating and rearranging my my home office, um, putting into into my view those cues of belonging, cues of identity, um, and also I got a giant oversized bulletin board, um, which I now use to sort of create my my landscape of ideas. Um, so you know, I'm I'm doing my best to 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 to, talk, to walk the walk, uh, walk the talk. I guess is how you say it. Um, to use another embodied metaphor. Um, but I, I have found those things to be to be helpful. Also, I, I also rem- remind myself to look out my window periodically. I have a big tree right in front of my window, so I find that helpful too. Hey, I'll just give one more. This was one of Mike's questions, but I thought it was a good one. Is uh, Annie, what do you do when you feel stuck? Well, I mean, as I say, that's one of the things I love about the extended mind is that it gives you so many options. You know, it's not your only option is not just sitting there, you know, and flogging your brain brain until you're done. <laughs> yeah. Um, I would some of the menu one of, of options that I would um take take up, you know, depending on the, the circumstances would be taking a walk, um, get, getting outside. Um, going for a workout, um, you know, getting some real physical activity underway, um, changing the co- the context, like just changing the place where I'm working. Um, and then finally, like kind of bringing the social element into it, talking to a friend or, um, or a mentor and kind of uh, creating what philosopher Andy Clark calls a cognitive loop. You know, he likes to say that human beings are intrinsically loopy creatures. And this is another way in which we're different from computers. Computers don't need to like share their ideas with other computers and they're thereby, you know, enhance and, and, um, and improve their, their thinking. Um, but that, but human beings are like that. And so the more loops, the more cognitive loops we can create, whereby we're not leaving our ideas and our, um, thoughts inside our heads, but we're creating loops through the body, you know, moving, moving and, and gesturing, um, creating loops through our environment, you know, putting those ideas and, and pieces of information out into physical space or creating loops through the minds of other people. You know, those are all ways that our thinking gets better and we don't have the opportunity to, to improve our thinking that way when we keep um, our thoughts inside our heads. Well, I, uh, like I said at the beginning of the show, this book, The Extended Mind, really helped me kind of get through stuff. Some of it, which I felt like I knew intuitively, but I Mm -hmm. didn't really Mm -hmm. know it. And some Mm -hmm. of it, which was brand new to me, but it really changed the way I think and work. And 
I uh, I would recommend this highly. It's called The Extended Mind by Annie Murphy. Paul, you are on my list on Amazon of instant buys, Annie. Whatever you're going to make next, I'm I'm going to be there day one. <laughs> oh, yeah. oh, that's so nice. It may be a while, but thank you so much. I have one customer at least. <laughs> you do. You're good. You're good. And uh, and we so much appreciate. Now, if someone, I don't know, do you do anything on social media? Are you on Twitter or anything where people I can? I do. I am a big fan of Twitter and I love encountering people there so they can uh, look me up on Twitter. My my handle is at Annie Murphy Paul. And also, um, I have a website with www.anniemurphypaul.com. Also, I'll just drop my email here if anybody wants to ask me a question. I'm at anniemurphypaul at gmail.com. Well, it, it was an excellent book. Thank you so much for doing all the hard work of putting the research together. And um, and like I said, it's it just an excellent book. I certainly like a minute. Thank you, Annie, for coming in today. Uh, we get it all, Mike. Did I miss anything? There's so much I want to ask, but you know, we got to we got to let her go. Yeah, we got to got to respect <laughs> Annie's time. But I just want to say thank you for enabling my fidgeting because uh, you talk oh, about yeah. in chapter three. That's a form of self regulation. <laughs> yes, yes, I know it should not be stigmatized. I'm really glad to hear that you that got. That spoke to you. <laughs> All right. Uh, so uh, AnnieMurphyPaul.com on the web. Thanks, Annie, for coming in. We are the Focus Podcast. You can find us at relay.fm slash focus. Thank you to our sponsors today. And that's our friends at Indeed and Hrefs. We'll see you next time.